There we go. So we're gathering again. And you know what is amazing? I love it when the Holy Spirit works. When the Holy Spirit speaks, we hear His voice, we discern His voice, we act upon it. Now last week, I said to you, if you were listening, if you were uh, watching, I said to you that I had planned on preaching a particular message, Reset, Rebuild, Reignite. And, and as I was preparing for that message, God just dropped it in my spirit, no, that's not the message. Last week, it was last week's message. And he said, Reset, Rebuild is for this week. Now, I don't know if you knew that the president would open up churches. But I didn't know that. That only happened midweek. And so I really love it when, when, when God works, we hear, we, 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 we obey, and it works out. And it shows a living and active God in our lives. And so I'm excited that God said, not next, last week, but this week, reset, rebuild, reignite. Now, if you were here on the 1st of November when we opened up for the first time, this is going to sound a lot like that. It's going to sound a lot like that, but it's not going to be the same. So it's going to be similar, but not the same. And so you're going to hear um, quite a bit from that one. And then I'm going to focus on the reignite. Because that's the important part. That's the really important part. Now, it's, again, it's just interesting. I made a note here as we were worshipping. Again, God dropped in my spirit. When we talk about the return of the exiles, and we're going to get to that, there were two returns of the exiles. That was my key focus of the first message, and, and the first of November. We'd returned from exile. Our COVID exile, we had returned. And then, beginning of January, government said, no, stop. And we had to go into COVID exile again. And here we are sitting again. This is our second return. And there were two distinct returns of the exiles. I was sitting with someone earlier this week in Saint, and, and, and in our conversation, they told me that they had had a brought someone to church one day, not a believer. And when they had were driving back home, uh, this guy popped up and he says, "Listen, who's this chick Mary? It was Christmas service. Who's this chick Mary?" And 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 the person said to me they nearly had an accident because this guy was 29 years old. He came from England. And he didn't know who Mary, the mother of Jesus, was. He had not heard that before. And, and I think the challenge, and it reiterated what we know already, and what, as preachers, we are taught now, is that we're living in a post-Christian era where we assume, we that have come to church often, we that grew up in church, we that went to Sunday school, we assume everyone coming to church, sitting here for the first time, listening to the first time, is going to know who Mary is. And they don't. And we assume that when I say the exile of the Jews, that way they know exactly what I'm talking about. And they don't. They don't. And I know that there's people listening to this message. And I don't know if they're hearing it for the first time. So I'm going to give you a brief history. A brief history as how we got to the exiles. So I'm going to start right at the beginning. Genesis. God created the heavens and the earth. Hallelujah. Okay. Hallelujah. My son is 14 years old. He's busy looking at apologetics now, right now. And, and, and trust me, he's looking at all the evidence. not looking at the evidence. He knows it's there. I saw something on, on Facebook. It said, I don't need proof that God exists. I'm here. That's my proof. 
And I thought that that is such a powerful statement. That aside, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We had Adam, we had Eve. Okay, then, then the devil came along and he tempted them. They sinned. And then you have what we call the fall of humanity, the fall of Adam and Eve. That's when sin, in, sin entered the world. And, and, and the chief thing over there was, if you take, partake, you'll be like God. And you won't die. That was the lie. Wasn't talking about mortal death. It was talking about spiritual death. So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Adam and Eve creates them. They have children. Uh, they flourish. Cain kills Abel. Or the other way around, I, can't, oh, I think Cain kills Abel. Yeah, Cain kills Abel. Um, they have more children. And then the world is wicked. And then you get to Genesis 6. And then you get Noah's flood. And there's always debate around the world about Noah's flood. Did Noah's flood really happen? Were there dinosaurs on the ark? Yes, there were. Okay, you can come talk to me about that later. Okay. Um, and so, so then you get to Noah's flood. And, and people have a disbelief about Noah's flood. God bless you. Some Christians have a disbelief about Noah's flood, unfortunately. Let me tell you, Noah's flood was real. There's evidence. Go to creation.com and you'll read enough evidence for the existence or for the proof that Noah's flood took place. In fact, I was sent something recently that showed where Noah's ark was possibly found. Then, so, so then Noah has the, uh, God calls Noah, puts him in the boat, sends all the animals into the boat, and, uh, and then God seals the door. You're going to take note of that. God seals the door, not Noah. God does it. This is a work of God. Rain comes down. Everything happens. That happens. They rouse. They go to, uh, rest on Mount Ararat, send out the doves, the ravens, and eventually they don't come back. And then Noah knows, okay. It's good enough. It's right now for us to leave the ark. Leaves the ark, uh, carries on. And then we get to Genesis 12. Sorry, let me start with Genesis 11. You get the Tower of Babel. Again, you have this issue of pride that rises up in the peoples of the world. They say, let us build a tower that reaches to the heavens and make a name for ourselves. There's the pride. So God... Confuses them uh, at the Tower of Babel. That's Genesis 11. Then you get Genesis chapter 12 and God says, I'm going to choose someone. And he chooses Abraham. Abraham's an old one. Abraham's got no children. Nothing. And he says to Abraham, I'm going to make you the father of many nations. Father of many nations. He says, but leave the land of your fathers. He's living in the land of the uh, Chaldeans, which is close to where Babylon is. And he sets them off to the land of Canaan. And, he, and, 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 and Abraham goes. Eventually, he doesn't have children, still doesn't have children. His faith is tested. Has the uh, illegitimate child. And then he has the promised child. And God says to him, go sacrifice the promised child. Isaac. God saves Isaac out of that, testing Abraham's faith. So you'll be tested, people. God will ask you to do something. He will ask you to trust Him. And then He will do something that will make you question that trust. He's testing your faith. You've got to push through. Last week we spoke about weathering the storm and sometimes and we all face storms. That's testing your faith. Jesus said many times, are you of little faith? That's not a derogatory term. Okay? So, so, then you get to Abraham, and God says to Abraham, I'm going to bless you and make you uh, many nations, but your descendants are going to be slaves. 
How would you like that, to hear that word? Anyone raise your hands? I'm going to give you children, but your descendants are going to be slaves. That's not an easy word. It happens. Joseph goes to Egypt, becomes prime minister of Egypt, and then uh, after uh, Joseph dies, Jacob dies, uh, the 12 sons die. A um, couple of years later, a king rises who did not know Joseph and the good that he did for the, for the Egyptians, that he puts the Jews into servitude and they become slaves for 400 years. After 400 years, you have the Exodus. During the time of the Exodus, you have uh, God giving the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai. You have the generation that passes away because they didn't have faith that God would lead them out or through or take possession of the land. And so the generation dies off and the next generation takes over. The next generation is led to, to conquer the land. And then you have the period which is known as the conquest. Joshua leads the conquest of the promised land and they take it over. Joshua is made, is, is, leads them. Joshua dies. Samuel is uh, raised during that time. Samuel is raised towards uh, during the time of the judges. They didn't have a king. They just God raised up individual leaders. And those were the judges who helped to help rid the country, the world, the, 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 the Israelites, to free them from the oppression that was taking place. And that was the time of the judges. At the end of the time of the judges, you get Samuel. Samuel's a prophet of God. He's a prophet of God from a very young age. Very young age. He's eight years old when he hears the word of God for the first time. Eight years old. So don't mistrust when your children come to you and say to you, God is saying, be attentive to that. I don't say jump and move immediately, but be attentive to what our children say because sometimes God is speaking to them very, very closely. The people say, we don't want, we don't want prophet. As, as our leader, we want a king. So they choose, God chooses King Saul for them. And I've spoken about King Saul before. After King Saul, he, he failed in his kingship. The, after that, God anoints David as king, as a shepherd boy. He anoints David. And for nearly 30 years, 20 years, 30 years, David isn't the king. But he's been anointed as the king. And the time will come for him to take over. David is known as a man after God's own heart. And he's the golden king of Israel. Sorry, I just want to put my timer on, otherwise I go too far. So, so David then becomes king. He then has some sons. One of them in particular, Solomon, takes over from him, the wisest king. Wrote Proverbs, wrote the Song of Solomons, um, wrote a couple of Psalms as well. Ecclesiastes, that all belongs to Solomon. Solomon, known as uh, Queen of Sheba, comes to listen to the wisdom of Solomon. So you have Solomon. The end of Solomon's life. He turned, unfortunately, away from God. He did not follow wholeheartedly after the way of God. And he sets up idols for his wives, his foreign wives. He should have followed the word of God that says, don't have too many wives because they will lead you astray. That's not our wives. Don't, don't, don't come to me and say to me, our wives are going to lead you astray. I'm not saying that. I'm saying for the kings. That's what God said to the kings. Solomon dies and his son Rehoboam takes over. And at that time, Rehoboam takes counsel from two sets of people. 
The first set was the wise people and the second set were his friends. And like a young man does many times, he doesn't listen to the wisdom of age. He follows the counsel of his friends. And as a result of that, the kingdom splits into two. Into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom comes to be known as Israel. The southern kingdom comes to be known as Judah. Israel sins continuously. They sin and they sin and they sin and they sin and they sin. You know when God, God says, he says, the Lord, the Lord, slow to anger, abounding in love. God is slow to anger. He's slow to anger. Many people come into, into they face crises in their life. And they say, oh, they feel that this is the judgment of God upon them. They did this or that and the other. They sinned. No. God doesn't work like that unless he's been whipping you for a while. Okay? Hebrews says that do not despise the discipline of the Lord because the Lord loves his children. And he disciplines those whom he loves. Okay, so if God is, is whipping you about something, maybe he's going to whip you a little bit harder. But if first sin that you do, first mistake that you make, he's not going to come down on you with a ton of bricks and go, whoa! You know, God is a judgmental God. No. Look at the history of Israel. He's slow to anger and abounding in love. That is his own words. And he's the same for you. He is the same for you. Slow to anger and abounding in love. But the kings did not lead Israel correctly. They continued to sin. Go and read the books of the kings and the chronicles. King after king after king after king. Did worse than, uh, than the previous one in the eyes of the Lord. So eventually they get attacked. They get taken into exile. Assyria attacks them. And, and, and they go, and the ten tribes, northern tribes, are scattered and taken away. Never, ever to return. Judah does better, but they don't do everything that well either. Okay? They still sin. Some kings rise up and they do well, and then some kings rise up and they don't do well. And so God, God says to Judah, Turn. Through the prophets, he says, turn back, turn back, turn back, turn back, turn back. And they spared a good couple of a hundred years before eventually they too get taken into exile. This time they get taken to Babylon. King Nebuchadnezzar comes along and he destroys the temple. He takes the people and from there you're going to, get, you're going to read Daniel was taken into, uh, into Babylon and uh, Jeremiah is around during that time, weeping prophets. Jeremiah is during that time. And so the Jews are sitting in the exile. They're sitting in Babylon. And the supposed prophets in Babylon are saying to the Jews, No, we're going to return soon. You'll see our God will come for us. And God says to Jeremiah, He says, No, no, no. Send this message to the Jews. He says, Stay. Stay. Stay in the land that I... God have taken you captive to. It was God's doing. And this is a pivotal moment for us right here, for the nation of Israel and for us personally. Okay, and I'm going to get back to that. God says through the prophet Jeremiah, this is not going to be a short-lived stay. It's going to be long. So while you're there, pray for the city. So that it may prosper. So that you too may prosper. He says, give your sons and daughters into marriage. Plant lands. Harvest. Build buildings. Because after 70 years, then only will you return. 
after 70 years. And the reason God sent them to Babylon was for this. I will give them a heart to know me. God takes his own chosen people. He sends them into exile. And the reason he sent them into exile was so that they would get a heart to know him. Friends, that is our reset point. That is our reset point. And as I said in my November message, and I say it again, God did not create the coronavirus. He did not create the coronavirus as a punishment or a judgment against us. But what has happened, as many people have said to me, is that their life has been changed by lockdown. Their life has been changed by isolation. Their life, in a better word, has been reset. Their faith has been reset. They're trusting more in God. They're growing closer to God. They're understanding Him better. And though God did not cause this isolation or this COVID exile for a want of a better term, He most definitely has used it. He most definitely has used it. And people have been reset. The world has been reset. And it's not easy for many people because sometimes that resetting has come with a great deal of pain. It's come with a great deal of pain. Lives have been lost. Businesses have been lost. I don't know about you, but we were having a chat just yesterday. And the price of stuff has gone up exorbitantly. Not your little small 5%, 10% normal increase. 20%. People are trying to recover what they lost during COVID, and we're going to pay the cost for that. Lives have been lost. When the exiles, when the Jews went to exile, they went into exile through war. The only war that took place with no lives were lost was the Cold War. When everyone had their nuclear weapons pointed at each other, there was no real war, it was a cold war. Other reasons why lives were lost during that time. But during the act of war itself, there was no lives lost. Friends, COVID has killed people. And we prayed for someone this morning in Kenya who's taking care of orphans. And if you go and read, go and read the book of Esther during this time period as well. Esther was in exile. She was an orphan. And so she was taken care of by her uncle. God's people took care of their own. And so I want to challenge you. You're out there as well. We're going to have to start taking care of people. There are going to be families who have lost. We've heard stories. My wife's a nurse. She's, she's hearing horrific stories. Whole families being lost, decimated. we got people in this church phoning me, saying to me, this happened. I don't know how to answer. 
there's going to be orphans. And the greatest danger is going to be the spiritual orphans. The children who grow up, I don't want to say despising God, but angry with God. They're going to be angry with God. And they're going to be hard to reach with the love of God. It's going to be hard ground to break. But friends, I'm telling you now, there's hard ground to break going forward. God has used COVID, whether we like it or not, whether we agree with it or not, but God has used COVID to reset the people of God so that they will have a heart to know Him. Then after 70 years, exactly as Jeremiah prophesied, exactly as I think it's Isaiah who says that Cyrus would do it. The Jews are released. Cyrus takes over as, as king of, of Babylon. And uh, he then says, and he says, okay, and, and what he does, he wants to make, he wants, he wants, what does he want? He wants the, he wants the blessing of the gods of the nations that he's attacking. He's not doing this. Because he loves God. Please understand this. Cyrus releases the Jews because he wants them to go rebuild the temple so they can go worship God and ask for a blessing upon him. There was a standard practice of the kings of that time to allow the nations to continue to worship their gods and in the worshiping of their gods to pray for an additional blessing for them. So that is why Cyrus releases the Jews. They go under Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel takes a whole couple of thousand people through to the, um, back to Jerusalem. After that, Ezra comes. Ezra's key purpose in coming back during that time, he was a teacher. This is a good couple of years later. More than a decade, I think nearly three, uh, two decades later, Ezra returns. Um, and, and he goes to go and teach the law. Now, in that in that, not everyone returned from exile. We back here at church, we're back from our COVID exile, but not everyone's returned from exile, and that's okay. They've established their lives in Babylon. They've got businesses, they've got wealth, they've got children, they've got grandchildren now there. Their family is there. They want to stay in Babylon. And, and God says to them, God bless you, that's okay. You can stay there, that's fine. But those that want to come back, come back. Welcome back. Those that want to come back, come back. Welcome back. Those that want to stay, stay. God bless you too. That is okay. God is going to bless you too. And so Ezra comes back. They, uh, whilst they were away in, um, uh, on exile, they built the synagogues. When the temple's gone. They haven't got a place to worship God. So they built, built the city, synagogues in Babylon. And that's how they start worshiping God. They come back to Jerusalem. And they start building the temple. But not immediately. Haggai first has to tell them, Hey, listen, you guys are living in your paneled houses. Come and build. So they rebuilt the temple. And that was the chief focus of my last message was a rebuilding of the temple. In Ezra 3, it says that the foundation, when it was finished, just the foundation, that there was, there was rejoicing as well as weeping. There was rejoicing as well as weeping because the foundation of the second temple was much smaller than the foundation of the, second of the first temple. Now, Daniel lived in Babylon for 70 years. It says right at the end 
He lived there. Oh, sorry. At the end of chapter one, he lived the entire 70 years that they were in exile. So Daniel is alive when the Jews return. He lived 70 years in Israel. He's probably, if he was taken as a youth, he's probably 80, 85, maybe 90 years old. We don't know exactly. And it says in Ezra, it says that the older people who had seen the former temple, they were the ones that were weeping. And I just have to wonder, the Bible doesn't say if it is, if the likes of a Daniel had returned. Because at the end of Daniel, the book of Daniel, it doesn't say what happened to his life. It just ends with his prophecies. It doesn't say what happened to him. So the foundation, there's, 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 there's weeping. Um, and, then, and so here it is in Haggai 2. It says, on the 21st day of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Haggai, speak to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, to Joshua, son of Zerodach, he was the high priest, to the remnant of the people, ask them, who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it seem, not seem to you like nothing? But now be strong, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Zerodach. Be strong, all you people of the land. Be strong. All you people of the land. Be strong, declares the Lord, and work. That's interesting. That's very interesting. Adam and Eve, they, God didn't give them their food on a platter. Go back and read that. God didn't give them their food in their platter. He didn't have a table prepared for them. Psalm 23. He'll sit at the table. Didn't have that in Garden of Eden. What he said was, go work the land. The first instruction to humanity, go work the land. God says to the exiles coming back, go work. Go work. There's work to be done. Go work for I am with you, declares the Lord. This is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt. And my spirit remains in you. Remember we spoke about the Exodus. Egypt. We spoke about Abraham whose kids went into Egypt. They became slaves. So that's where that reference comes, uh, makes reference to. This was the covenant that I made with you in Egypt. And my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while, I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations, and the desire of all nations will come. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house. That was my message to you on the 1st of November, as you returned for the first time. The glory of, this, of the second house will be greater than the glory of the first house. And the reason I said to you in the next message the week after that that can be true is because we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We carry the Spirit of God within us. We can take the glory of God far further than any temple building can. These four walls cannot take God's glory anywhere. But the temple, the Holy Spirit of God in each and every single one of you can take the glory of God to the uttermost ends of the world. Because that's the great commission. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. All nations. All nations. 
And even today, those listening over here, those listening on Facebook, those listening on YouTube, I don't know where you are, but you are in the uttermost ends of the world. I've had messages from New Zealand. I've had messages from Pakistan and India, Kenya. I've had messages from South Africa. The message is going out to the uttermost ends of the world. The glory of the second temple will be greater than the glory of the first. People have been reset. Their lives have been reset. And now it's time to rebuild. There's work to do. There's work to do. When they came back, they rebuilt the temple. We need to rebuild our faith, people. We need to rebuild the faith of other people. They need to see a living and an active God working in and through our lives. One of the chief challenges, questions that I asked last week throughout the course of the week, if you're not on Facebook, get onto Facebook because you're going to see sermon snippets come through. One of the chief questions or statements that I made, I said this, I said, you need to weather your storm. Because there are people whom God graciously wants to save through you, whom you come into contact with. You need to weather your storm. However difficult that is, we need to help rebuild people's faith. That was the rebuilding of the temple. But more than that, more than that, they rebuilt the wall. That was the whole purpose of Nehemiah coming down. Go and read the book of Nehemiah. I dealt with Nehemiah in February of 2019, I think it was. Go listen to the messages. That one, I, I don't know, I'll find them. They're not on the website anymore. Nehemiah came to rebuild the walls. He, he, he hears the message that the city is in ruins. He weeps. He gets permission, goes and rebuilds the walls. And what do the walls represent? The walls represent defense. They rebuilt the temple in the middle. They rebuilt the wall, walls on the side. They're standing with a sword in one hand and a trowel in another hand. I don't think they had trials those days. But that's what it would be like today. They're standing on God because people don't want them to rebuild the wall. They don't want them. The enemy does not want us to rebuild our faith. Just as we thought November 1 was great, we're going to move ahead. Boom. January we stop. I'm hoping that this is our second return and it's our final return. I'm hoping that the numbers are down. But that is... We need to rebuild our defenses. He says here, says here in verse 20 of Nehemiah, yeah, says here, Wherever you hear the sound of the trumpet, join us there. Our God will fight for us. Now it's interesting. I spoke last week. I showed you from, from Paul's journey in the boat. He had a company of people with him. And I said to you that, that our faith journey is not to be done in isolation. It's done in community. Now I want to show you our defense is, def is, is done in community too. When you hear the sound of the trumpet, join us there in community. God will fight for us. Peter writes and he says, 
that the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Those who are alone are much easily devoured. Easy targets for the devil. Our defenses are done in community, people. We need each other to build our faith together. Do not forsake the gathering of the saints. Why? So that we can encourage one another. Our faith journey is not supposed to be done in isolation. It's supposed to be done in community. And I know it's difficult for people. People who are worried. People who are in isolation. I'm not saying that they are lost or getting lost or anything like that. All I'm saying is I recognize the dangers. I recognize the dangers. I recognize the dangers. I want to draw our attention to our weekly prayer on a Thursday. We had a wonderful prayer this morning. Oh, it was fantastic. Why? We gathered together. We gathered together and our, our prayers spurred each other on. And as great as our weekly WhatsApp prayer meeting is, it's not the same. There's a lot of people listening. Very few people praying. And so I want to encourage you. I want to say to you that the trumpets will be sounded yet again in North Baptist. That we are going to have to start regathering. And the chief place of our regathering is going to be in our prayer. It's going to be in our prayer. Be ready to come and pray. Be ready to come and pray. Jesus said, my house, God said, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. We're rebuilding the temple. We're rebuilding our faith. We're rebuilding the walls, our defenses, our prayer. But the other thing that happened when they rebuilt is they rebuilt community. They rebuilt community. When they returned, they went out into the grounds, into the lands. They worked the fields. They harvested. They lived in their panel houses, which is why God said, why are you living in panel houses? My house is not yet built. Where must I live? Come rebuild. And so they rebuild. They rebuild their community. And then once the walls are done, once the temple is built, they made a concerted effort and they chose families to come live in the city. So they built community, not only in prayer and defense, but they brought true community back together. In the city, in the city of David. So the time is coming that we rebuild our temple, our faith, that we rebuild our community and we rebuild our walls, our defenses. Be ready. Reset. Rebuild. I want to stop and pray quickly. I want to stop because I, I got a prayer request here from a, a pastor in India. He's saying, you know what, Corona's closed us all down there, but they're restarting the tent. And we prayed this morning for many churches. So on this area of resetting and rebuilding, let's just stop for a moment and pray. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you that we can gather, that we have been able to gather. But I know, Lord, that there are many churches, even within the Baptist family, who cannot open up. I pray, Father God, that the time will come soon that they can reopen. We recognize, Lord, that you have done a work of resetting. We recognize, Lord, that you're busy with the rebuilding. We recognize, Lord, that uh, a time of reigniting must come. So, so we pray, Father God, for all the churches. I pray especially, Father God, for Pastor John in Kerala, in India. 
I pray, Father God, that as he opens his doors again on the 10th of February, which is this week, I pray, Father God, that you would bless his church and his ministry. In Jesus Christ's name and for your glory's sake. Amen. So the people reset. And then they rebuilt. And then what happens when they've returned is they reignite. They reignite. And this is the chief focus of what I want to get to. What reignited the people's devotion? What reignited the people's devotion? If you go and read Ezra, go and read Nehemiah. They sat, and we're going to get into Nehemiah chapter 8. And we're going to read a bit of what happened over there that reignited their faith. Sorry, if anyone doesn't know, that's my wife. Everyone watching YouTube, that's my wife. And Bible at the back there, please. Next to the fan. I personally like the NIV. I've got an ESV over here. The ESV is a great Bible for anyone that's interested in getting a Bible. Okay, so we're going to go to Nehemiah chapter 8. Thank you, Anamari. Nehemiah chapter 8. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gates. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law, the Bible, that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Israel, the priest, brought the law before the assembly of God, both men and women, and all he could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it facing the square before the water gates from early morning until midday. I've been harping on reading the Bible for months. For, for months. These guys read it from early morning until midday. They probably didn't have canopies or shade cloth or anything like that. In the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand, and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Verse 4, And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose, and beside him stood a whole bunch of people. Verse 5, And Ezra opened the book in the sight of the people, for he was above all the people, and as he opened it, all the people stood. There is a reverence for the word of God. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with the faces to the ground. Also Jeshua, all those other names over there, 
while the people remain, help the people understand the law, while the people remain in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. Friends, the reigniting of our devotion to God lies squarely over here. Squarely over here. I started a, 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 a teaching series with my young adults in the Bible study last, last year. And, and I said to them, I, I bought a, a couple of books from Precept Ministries, looked at the covers and thought, okay, which one should we deal with? And the one said, reignite, said, ignite your passion for God. Yeah, let's grab that. Grab that, sat down, started doing it. And you know what it was? It had nothing to do with service to God. So in other words, don't reignite your passion because you're going help the orphans or spread the gospel or go to uh, 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 a food, uh, distribute food. Nothing like that. None of, no, don't reignite your, God, uh, your passion for God through service. None of that. There was no reignite your passion for God through fasting. You're reading the Bible, fast and pray, dedicate yourself. Jesus says that when I'm gone, my people will fast. None of that. Fasting didn't reignite the passion. Reading the word did. And that was the focus. That is the focus. Reignite your passion for God by getting into the word of God. Getting into the word of God. But friends, they didn't simply just read it. They acted upon it. If you go back and, and see what happens, they, read, they realized that there's a whole bunch of laws that they didn't uphold. And so they rededicated themselves to that. They read that they needed to stay in, in, in tabernacles and booths for the Feast of Booths. And they did that for the first time since Joshua. They did that. 500, 600 years, 700 years, 800 years later. They did that for the first time since Joshua. They did that. They acted upon the word. Reading, James says, James says, he says, he says, don't just read the word. Do the word. Because if you read it and don't act upon it, you're like a man looking at a mirror who turns away and doesn't remember what he looks like. Doesn't remember what he looks like. I've shared with you before that we are the apple of God's eye. Okay? And what that means, it's not the, the fancy term that we think that we're special. Yeah, we're special. But that's not what that term means. The apple of God's eye. The apple of God's eye means that God, when he looks at us, and looks intently into our eye, he sees his reflection. And the only way that God is going to see him in us is through this. But not just reading it, acting upon it. This is what reignites our faith in God. Nehemiah 10. It says, 10 verse 29, says, Bind ourselves to follow the word and the laws of God. Nehemiah 10 verse 30 says, We promise 
that we will follow the word of the Lord. Verse 31, we will not. We will. These are emphatic statements that the people, in their reigniting of their faith in the word of God and their devotion to God, we bind ourselves. We promise. We will not. We will. We assume responsibility. We, carry, we will carry out the commands. They cast lots to determine who's going to do their portion. They assume responsibility to bring to the house. As it is written, it says, we will. As it is written, we will. Verse 10.39. Nehemiah 10.39. We will not neglect the house of the Lord. Now the sad part is, as we look at the exile, we will kind of come back with a reignite. We're going to reignite our faith. And in time to come, we're going to have to rely on our own faith energy to continue to propel us, to continue to live by that faith. Yeah, they had Nehemiah, they had Ezra, they had Joshua, they had Zerubbabel. But a time comes when Nehemiah is left and he has to come back because they're not taking care of the house. They have neglected the house of the Lord. Friends, it's easy to neglect. It's, it's even more easy when we're in isolation. Again, not a judgment. I'm just saying be careful. It's easy to neglect when we are away from others, when we are not in community. I'm cautiously and I'm caringly and I'm lovingly. As your shepherd saying to you, be careful of isolation. If we forsake the gathering of the saints, we can uh, too easily neglect. It is the word of God lived out in our lives that ignites our passion for God. And we need to do things deliberately and decisively. We have to act upon it. Get first, do first things first. Get our habits right. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. But do what it says. Do what it says. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for we thank you for your word, Lord. We thank you, Father God, that your word is God breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, and training in righteousness. We thank you, Father God, that your word is a lamp unto our feet and a guide unto our life and our path. We thank you, Father God, that through your word we can know you. We thank you that through your word we know about Jesus. We thank you that through your word we are saved. And so, Father God, as we gather today for the first time in many days, many months, many weeks, we pray, Father God, that as we have returned yet once again the second time, we pray, Lord, that there would be a reigniting in the hearts and the lives of the people, your people. We pray, Father God, that they would get into your word, as some have already told me that they're doing. We pray, Father God, that they would not simply read this word, but that it would become active in their lives. Your word says that it is active and living, sharper than a two-edged sword, cutting to bone and marrow and dividing even spirit. Father God, may your word be everything for us, so that we may live holy and pleasing before you, 
ready to proclaim the gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Ready to live out your word. And so we ask, Heavenly Father, bless us through your word. We pray in Jesus Christ's name. Reignite our devotion for you. Amen. You do not need to be a member of this church, North Baptist Church, if you have for the first time. You do not need to be a member of this church in order to partake of the communion elements, but you must be a born-again believer. If you have not yet accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, then I would ask that you do not partake of the elements, not because we want to withhold, but because you bring judgment upon yourself, the Bible says, if you partake in an unworthy manner. The Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 11, If I receive from the Lord that which I also handed on to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, took a loaf of bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body that is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after the supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We are the invited that can come to this table of grace and of mercy. Hear this invitation. Come. Not because you must, but because you may. Not because anything that you have done makes you able to come, but because you need mercy. You need grace. Come and meet the risen Christ. Please come through it and take of the communion elements. Lord, as everyone comes up and takes, we pray, Father, that you would bless the bread. We thank you for your body broken for us. We thank you for your blood poured out for us. May we know you intimately, Lord, as we remember you. In Jesus' name. Receive the blessing of God. Peace be to the brothers. And love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with an undying love. Amen. Thank you so much. Please join us next week online too.